welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast, Jeff. Hello, Patrick. How are you? I'm doing well, and you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, today we have a special edition of the Beer Vana Podcast. We are celebrating the release, finally, of the Beer Bible. <laughs> I put I put my hand on the Bible <laughs> that I have in front of me. Drumroll, please. Uh, and swear by it. Um, as always, with me is uh, Jeff Allworth, author of this mighty tome. Uh, the Beer Bible from Workman Publishing out now. Get your copies while they last. I think they'll print more though if you, if you, uh, if they run out. So don't worry. Uh, also, uh, author of Cider Made Simple. Yes. Out soon. Out out next month. All right. And you are Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University. That's correct. Uh, so Jeff. Yeah. Today we're going to devote the podcast to talking about your book. Right, and we'll. Um, for all those listeners who have been seeing on social media and on my blog and everything, all this talk of the beer Bible, this will be our one shot, and then we'll get it out of our systems, and we won't keep belaboring the point. That's right. Uh, the beer Bible is not a title you chose. I, uh, Workman Publishing had a very successful wine book entitled The Wine Bible. Right. Um, they actually uh, commissioned this book. Um, it is a uh, rather uh, grandiose title uh how, how did you how did you address living up to uh to the title the beer bible i see this is going to be one of those fox news interviews yeah i've done all my research i know all your skeletons man <laughs> uh yeah well that's a it's true that uh the idea was to create a reference guide that basically covered everything about beer um it's I don't know if it's actually possible to do that, but I was trying to, um, I did have as a, a guiding light that if there were any kind of, you know, reasonably, uh, reasonable question that you'd have about beer that you could turn to this and there would be some, yeah, some reference to it, some information on it. So that, that was, that was a kind of the overarching thing about the biblical side. And then we, um, you know, the way we laid the book out and everything we tried to capture through the, through the organization. Yeah, so let's talk about the organization because the wine bible made a lot of sense in that you can talk about wine regionally, mm-hmm. um, but beer these days is sort of a mishmash of styles that used to be associated with regions and aren't so much anymore. So how did you go about thinking about uh, how to structure the book and how did it come out? Yeah, well, I I think styles are still connect connected to place. Um, we traveled around the world. I, I traveled uh, with you to England and Scotland, and then. I traveled to other, some other countries to see where these styles that we, you know, when you buy a bottle of beer, it'll have a style name on it. Um, so I traveled to the countries where those were made to see what they're like. And, you know, one thing that I discovered is there's, these are not flavors, like ice cream flavors. You know, they're, they're, there's a story behind every style of beer that draws in the history of the beer style when it got started and how it was inflected by things like uh, cultural preferences, law, uh, wars, um, privation, all these kind of things. Uh, tax law is a huge one. Tax law has had a huge effect on the way beer styles evolved. Yeah. Um, so w- when you read a chapter, m- most of the book is uh, designed around the style chapters. So when you read one of these chapters, you get that background. Um, you get some discussion of you know what to expect in that style. Uh, a little bit about the brewing, the way the beer is brewed. Um, and I turn to the brewers that I visited uh, when I write those up. And then there is a piece called Evolution, which talks about where the where the beer style is headed. Because mm-hmm. um, one thing that you learn when you start researching the, the history of beer is that all of these styles have gone through evolution. So they've always been in flux. Um, and they are, con- but as you mentioned, and, and uh, there were a few people on Facebook who mentioned this too, it is a really dynamic time uh, right now as craft beer is an international phenomenon and everybody's making these styles. So they're all kind of in flux. Um, so I tried to guess where they were headed, talk about where they're headed now and, and project where they're, where they're likely to land in, in the near future anyway. Yeah. Well, one of actually, I think the useful bits about doing it that way is that, uh, to sort of make any sense of the beer culture now, uh, it helps to really understand the origins of these styles. Um, the regions and the stories. And um, that's one of the things that uh, uh, I find particularly interesting. Well, one of the things I like I like a lot about the book is that uh, you're able to uh, to get into both sort of the personalities and the history and the, um, the region, 
regions of the beers in a way that's really entertaining and engaging. So it's not just sort of an encyclopedia of beer where you just sort of get the facts and figures and move on to the next one. You actually learn a lot about uh, all of these things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we love stories. I tried to, I, that's a, that's a little bit of uh, wisdom I've gathered. Uh, actually, mainly blogging. Blogging, you know, you can see which posts people like, and people really like posts where you, where you tell stories, where you talk about, um, you know, you give a little narrative scope uh, to some story. It uh, It's more interesting that way. So I tried to do that in the book, too. Yeah, this actually wasn't one of my questions, but I'm interested. So how how, how do you think that blogging helps you as a writer of a of a ink and paper no, no, novel, an ink and paper book? Your novels as well, but... Well, yeah, one thing um, that I, I will mention is um, because this exonerates or justifies my wasting time blogging for so many years, um, I actually got the book because of the blog. So that was w one little tidbit. Um, when I I was pitching a different book to this to Workman and they said they weren't interested in that, but they went and looked at my blog um, and found the the way it was done to be somewhat similar in voice i think and and kind of approach to the way karen did the beer bible or the wine bible and that's when she are that's that's when i got roped into it so yeah. blogging blogging uh saved saved me there which is pretty cool but i think uh the bigger question is um it made me more attuned to what people know and what they're interested in in beer you know i've had this dialogue going on with with uh, people who read the blog for uh i don't know nearly 10 years. I think I started in 2006. Mm -hmm. um, it also helped me. This this book was super long, and I learned how to write fast for the blog, and it helped here. I, I had to blast through it pretty fast, so that was that was useful too. Yeah, my experience with blogging is is you need you, you learn very quickly what you need is sort of short, sharp uh, posts. Right. You, you can't drone on. People won't people won't last for that. They're not there to, <laughs> to see you expound at great length. Uh, so you look for for stories you can tell quickly and succinctly, and to, and to figure out a way to do it. Uh, I think that helps all writers. It's kind of the same uh, thing you hear from editors all the time. It's, uh, when you're constrained, you know, to 500 words, for example, if you're writing an op-ed, those kinds of things. They always say, oh, but it makes it better when when you really have to do, it. and it, it's often true. Yeah. Uh, I, and and I tried to do that with the book too. So it's one of those. Many people who have looked at it already said it's a. One of its virtues is that you can dip into it, and I think those little there's a bunch of little short pieces. They they can form, they can be linked together in longer pieces. But you can like pull open a chapter, and there's a you know read a couple of columns and yeah. As an it. aside, I I got my my textbook contract came out of blogging as well. So <laughs> <laughs> apparently, blogging is a is a foray into lots of different types there, of publishing. Yeah. There you go. Uh, okay, so obviously. We live here in Beervana. It's the Beervana podcast. This is a place that's just filthy with breweries. You can't you can't turn around and not stumble over one. Uh, there's brewers and beers of all style, so it's very easy to become sort of immersed in the local beer culture. Yeah. So how do you break out of that and, and write a book for the world? Write a, a, a book that's objective. Um, and as a as a follow up question, would it have been easier to do this if you hadn't been in Portland, like if you were in Tulsa, Oklahoma, as a beer writer, or do you think that it helps being in Portland? Yeah, I think um, there is a real tendency that people have of going to the same sources they have. We see this, you know, there's a big criticism about political reporting in Washington. And um, when I was writing the Beer Bible, each one of these chapters, there wasn't, you know, I I could have called up basically. Uh, for every chapter, I could have called up a, an Oregon brewer and talked to them about this beer, you know, whatever chapter I was working on. And I did do that with a number of them. Um, yeah, it's always good to be able to do that for background right. reporting. Yeah, but I did have to break the habit because it couldn't be about, you know, it couldn't be the beer Bible about Oregon beer. Um, <laughs> so, there, yeah, it was it was a challenge. I think um, the thing that makes it, the, the reason there's so many beer writers in Portland and the reason it was an asset for me is because... Um, I spend a lot more time with brewers, so I, I had an inside track. When you're writing something like this book, uh, you there's there's a ton of stuff you don't know, and um, the more the more you have resources to get you pointed in the right direction, uh, the better chance you have of finding the answers. So if you're you know if you're starting from zero, it's much harder to pull that off. Um, yeah, I mean I know from from actually mostly meeting brewer 
brewers through you uh, that brewers are also immer immersed in the culture and you often learn lots of interesting arcane things from brewers that you didn't know you didn't know. Yeah, exactly. And they're also often very well traveled and, and they'll they'll go off to places. They'll go off to Belgium and talk talk to the brewers there and there's sort of even a, a, a I think a a community of brewers worldwide. So um, uh, they're often great resources to point you in the right direction, um, I would imagine. Yep, that's exactly right. And we have we have some breweries uh, here in Oregon that have uh, real uh, insight into European brewing. And one example is Alan Taylor at Pints. We've talked about him a little bit. He was educated at VLB in Berlin. And so when I, before I, before the uh, lager when I, before I got into loggers, I was pretty intimidated by that. And um, I knew that I, you know, I could always go to Alan and say, all right, Alan, let's talk about loggers a little bit so I don't embarrass myself. What do I do when I get to Germany? What, you know, how do, how do I do this? And he pointed me in the right direction. <laughs> that was a big asset. So, yeah, that kind of stuff helps. Yeah. And so I know because I, I went with you to, to uh, Great Britain, to England and Scotland at least, uh, that you traveled extensively uh, for this book, and uh, we had a great time visiting many brewers, uh, breweries in um, in England and Scotland. But what it, what is it about traveling and and visiting these uh, breweries that you think you learn uh, that helps inform the book that you wouldn't otherwise have learned through just research and phone interviews and those kinds of things? This is the biggest discovery I made. Um, I, I think there there the the first lesson, uh, I've been talking about this with other people too since the book came out. The first lesson was the one I mentioned already about styles being lineages, they're not flavors. Mm -hmm. And there's a story behind every style. And the other one is that uh, people in countries brew in a particular way. Uh, English brewers brew a certain way. Scottish brewers brew, brew a certain way. Belgian brewers brew a certain way. And you can kind of intuit this a little bit. And you know, people like Michael Jackson have written about some of those features. But when you go into a brewery, um, like uh, Belgium is a really good example uh, that I offer pretty often. They have this thing called a warm room, which is this thing that no brewers elsewhere don't have. It's a, a room with um, stacks of uh, bottles, and it's at the, you know, you, when you go to a, a normal brewery tour, it ends at the bottling line. When you go to a brewery tour in Belgium, after the bottling line, you go to the warm room, and it's this place where they do secondary fermentation. All breweries do it. It is absolutely the way Belgians think about beer and even when they try to brew beer from other countries like they went through this weird period where they were brewing scottish ales and they've done stouts and stuff like mm -hmm. that they don't taste anything like scottish ales or stouts because they brew it their own way and they put it they do a secondary or secondary fermentation in the bottle and they put it in the warm room and it tastes belgian when it comes out mm -hmm. every country has that kind of approach to brewing um and there's a way in which you don't fully appreciate it until you go to brewery after brewery after brewery and you start seeing and talking to the brewers right. and you know what you think of as an obvious question they haven't thought of and what they think of as an obvious answer you've never thought of mm -hmm. so uh it's just this kind of process of getting in tune with the national tr brewing tradition yeah there. i mean i would i would add that you know that one of the takeaways that i or one of the things i came away with after traveling in england and in scotland was um, there are distinct cultures, uh, beer cultures in, in different places that you learn about. And it's, it's a culture of sort of uh, tradition and flavor. It's a culture of brewing techniques. It's a culture of equipment even, mm -hmm. Yorkshire Absolutely. Squares and, and yeah. England. Uh, and without sort of being there and really sort of experiencing and listening to the brewers talk about brewing and, um, and what, they, what they're trying to accomplish or what they think they're trying to accomplish is... Uh, um, you really, I, I don't think you really understand and sort of appreciate the different the different cultures out there. So uh, I thought it was fascinating. I, I it was much more the actual brewery tours themselves were much more interesting than I real than I thought they would be uh, coming into it. I was sort of looking forward to the parts uh, before and after, but um, but actually the the visits themselves became the highlight. So yeah, uh, so that was very interesting. Uh, are there particular Actually, let me uh, skip to this. Uh, the other question I wanted, which is, um, you you went to a lot of obvious places. You went to England and Belgium and Germany, Czech Republic, uh, but you also went to a few other places that would uh, people wouldn't necessarily expect. Uh, France and, and, and Italy are the two that uh, come to my mind. What what drew you there? And what well, did you find? Yeah, it, 
Uh, well, France, I intended, to, well, France was on my radar. Um, France has a little, there's a little corner of France where they have an old uh, brewing history and they make a particular kind of beer called Beer de Garde. So I knew about, I, I knew that France was a thing and it's, I was staying in a place in Belgium that was right across from, from this, the part of Western Belgium abuts uh, the Nord-Pas-de-Calais area, which is where they brew. So that, that was on my radar. What I didn't realize was that outside of that area across France, there is a whole bunch of uh, craft brewing that's going on. And it looks to be uh, a kind of brewing style that's going to follow a particularly French course. It's not going to be quite like Belgium. It's going to be in that in that vein, but it's going to be a little bit different. They're much more interested in the use of uh, rustic grains and spices than the Belgians are. Um, they they tend to do. They they're also a little bit because they they have the long history in in Brittany with the connection to to uh, England. They're more associated. They, they have a bigger interest in hops. So a lot of these other places um, outside of the Bure de Garde region, they do uh, dry hopping and and use more assertive hops so mm. it's it's you know it's one of those places where they're developing their own their own lineage right so i knew about that uh what i didn't know about was italy and i it was absolutely not on my radar there are a lot of countries where you have craft brewing happening uh in new zealand scandinavia um kind of all over the world and I, I knew italy had a little bit of that but it was when i was in belgium and brewer after brewer i'd go to on a brewery tour and then it was kind of natural that they would ask where, you know, where was I headed next? What countries was I going to? And they all, not all of them, but probably four or five Belgian brewers said, are you going to go to Italy? Because Italy's really got it going on. Huh. And eventually I thought, okay, you know, it only ha you only have to talk to a few of these guys before that question starts to make you think that you better take them seriously. Yeah. So I threw, I threw uh, Italy in there and it turned out to be exactly, they were exactly right. Italy is a very fascinating country and they are definitely, they're even ahead of, of France in developing indigenous uh, styles of beer, which we talked about a little bit on an earlier podcast. That's right. Yeah. Go, uh, if it intrigues you, go listen to our uh, earlier podcast, Bira Italia. Yeah. Um, so are there any particular moments that stand out from your travels? Like what are the, what are the highlights of the trips? I mean, you know, uh, the trips were just really extraordinary. I'd never been to uh, Europe before. I had spent a lot of time in Asia with some, some time, some of that time with you. Um, Indeed. And uh, sampling uh, beer, but. <laughs> but no, not primarily. Not, not a lot and not primarily. Yeah. yeah. Not particularly memorable. Yes. Uh, uh, some of that Indian beer is some of the worst I've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> in that way. Um, so that was that was cool. And when I you know when I review these trips, when I look at the pictures and and remind myself of all the the breweries I visited, uh, it was like w a one amazing stop after another. And you know, for beer geeks, um, there were there were, I was really aware in the moment that uh, there are, there are beer geeks in the all over the world who would love to have had the chance to do even one of the legs that that i did you were with me on one of those legs so i think you can probably yeah well I, I was gonna say the one the one uh one of my questions here was about about folks who are interested in sort of beery tourism uh which has become sort of more of a thing i guess but belgium appears to be the the place that people think most of to have a nice trip and visit visit breweries um there but actually in england um there are some really interesting places to go uh britain on trent of course has the museum i can't remember the name of uh the museum I think it's called the national brewery center it's like yeah that. it's but it's scott brewing in the <laughs> in the title and that was actually really fun i, I really enjoyed uh um, that museum you learn a lot about the history of beer and brewing you learn a lot about even sort of the history of the business of beer in england um so uh, that was fun. I recommend. I recommend that. And they also have the um, the uh, uh, Worthington. I don't know what they call it. I mean, it's sort of the brewery, but it's kind of like a. It's, yeah, so it's, it's sort of the the museum's test brewery, but they make Worthington. But they make Worthingtons there, which is sort of a classic. Worthington White Shield is one of the the all time classics, and and that was the one place we really were able to experience the Britain Snatch. Yeah, boy, did we experience it too. We were both blown away. Yeah, we 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 heard about it because the Britain Snatch explained it to us so we can we can talk about it. It's the uh so the water of Burton is very sulfurous. Mm -hmm. uh, it comes from these deep wells and 
um, for whatever reason, it has a lot of sulfur in it. And so the Burton Snatch is the aroma of... Uh, the rot, s- the rotten s- eggs. The rotten eggs. So there's two kinds of sulfur. There's one that smells like burn match, and there's one that smells like rotten eggs. Yeah. And my whole life, I'd, th- since I'd heard about the burn snatch, I just assumed it would be the much more palatable burned match sulfur. <laughs> but no. <laughs> As it turns out, not, not at all. <laughs> That's not what it was. It is a very strong uh, scent of rotten eggs that you get right as you lift the beer to your mouth. Uh, it is quite amazing that it kind of, you know, once the beer is in your mouth and you're tasting it, that goes away. But um, but it is not at all pleasant. And it's amazing how these things can be sort of turned into uh, to pleasant experiences. Uh, Marmite is another brewing example, I suppose, because it's uh, all this yeast byproduct of right. beer that they've turned into a, a spread. Uh, my my stepfather is English. He's, I grew up with him eating marmite on buttered bread and it was the most foul thing i ever and i tried it a few times and there's just no way it's good you just have to sort of convince yourself somehow it's good and they convince babies that it's good well, but i have to confess i sort of liked the the worthington i, I after the well that's it the I mean, once you get drinks, yeah exactly like, once you get over tasty. the initial scent it's 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 actually quite an interesting and, and enjoyable beer but it's amazing that you sort of my, my take i guess is is this that it's it's unpleasant but you convince you you create this story that it's sort of part of the character and and that if you don't appreciate it, somehow you're missing the point. And so possibly also, you know, uh, flavors are funny. You know, uh, things like caviar and uh, stinky cheeses. We we well, tend to, you know, think uh, like there's a there's a a period of acclim acclimatization. What's the word I'm looking for there? Yeah. Um, where you uh, you get past your natural gag reflex for these things, and uh, and then there's something behind it that's really alluring. And I, I don't know. I had yeah. that kind of stinky cheese experience with the the Worthington. Yeah. Well, this is actually true, and we can talk a little bit. You you, you talk a lot about sort of tasting and experiencing beer um, in the early parts of the book, um, and this is one of the things that I think is true about beer in general. And I often talk about this in, in terms of the economics of beer, which is that the um, you know especially the stronger uh, flavors from craft beer are sort of an acquired taste for those who are not used to anything other than the macro lagers. And it takes time to sort of get used to those flavors and to start enjoying them and being able to to, to identify them. And um, I, I'm speaking from personal experience because it took a while when I started drinking hoppy craft beers for me to really sort of start to truly enjoy it and appreciate it. So it's so a lot, of, a lot of things, I guess, are, are acquired taste. Yeah, I think that's right, and it's definitely the case in the beer world. You know, sour ales probably most people don't love them the first time they try them. So, yeah. So, uh, how easy was it to do the research for the book? Were were breweries in general accommodating and and eager to have you visit, uh, or were they um, difficult to get into? They were extremely accommodating, and it blew my mind. Um, I was not, you know, I I had one weird little book that I had written. It's really a pamphlet, the beer tasting toolkit, mm-hmm. and I'm a blogger. And um, uh, you did have a calling card, though. A call? What, what's that? You had a, a business card that you would oh you would, you would show it, up with your business card, which made it seem all very legit. Well, it's true, but that was after they agreed. <laughs> after they had agreed. Uh, before they had agreed to agree, <laughs> before they agreed, um, I I. It made me wonder, like, is you know, if you just said you were a a writer and you emailed these breweries, would they just invite you there? I don't know. Maybe they would. They they did it for me, and it was it was really surprising. Um, there were a couple of breweries that that did not get back to me, and maybe one or two that said no. Um, but uh, you you know, my 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 the percentage, and then there were a lot that, due to scheduling, it didn't work out. Um, other breweries that agreed, but I didn't. I wasn't able to see. Yeah, and that's the thing I guess I should point out, which is lots of breweries have tours that they offer the public. Um, these were not them. These were personal uh, tours with the brewmaster generally. Yeah, so, there were only two or three that I was not able to tour with the, the action, the, like the guy, the the brewmaster. And it, and I, unfortunately, in every case, it was a man. And that's what's yeah, and that's what's truly fascinating. Um, yeah, that is it is unfortunate. I'm trying to think. Were, were there any women that we met? In England or Scotland, I don't believe so. Um, yeah, not on the brewing side. But now at Fuller's, right? Right. There's uh, the the main lead 
uh, brewer, not the master brewer who doesn't do any brewing, but the main lead brewers, Georgina Young. So, and I would love to go back and meet her sometime. Yeah, hat tip to her. So uh, that's what I was going to say is that that it uh, being shown around by the the the, the master brewer or the or or one of the lead brewers in, in most cases was fascinating because they know everything about the whole process. And they often also, for me, it was fun because they also often think a lot about the business that they're in as well. Right. So you just learn just this, this universe of knowledge about the equipment they brew on, the local market they inhabit, the, the taste they're trying to uh, satisfy. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting. So and, and for me, it was actually important to talk to the brewer because there's weird little um, it's it, there's a way in which touring a brewery is a, a bit like a forensic process um, and and sometimes things that didn't seem at all important at at the time or might have been offhand comments turned out to be really critical to what I was writing and and one of, one of the examples um, that I'd use which you you witnessed too was when we would tour these English breweries the old uh, Victorian tower breweries um, that didn't have a lot of modern equipment. Um, uh, they they don't have the ability to control uh, the the temperatures of the the vessels um, nearly as well as as other breweries. So consistency is not really possible. And I remember when we were uh, at, at Green King, John Bexon was talking about this, and he was showing us the hand adjustments that he had on his vessels to try to I. I can't I can't remember exactly how they worked, but um, and he was talking about how you know when they're doing their single infusion mash, which is itself a fairly crude uh, approach. Um, he was you know he was like shoot let's say for 158 degrees I'm not sure exactly what his temperature was. He was happy to get it within a degree or two, and you know it varied. There were there were factors, and it was only much later as I was talking to brewers elsewhere. Was, this was the first country we'd gone to, so I was not really. That's kind of. It, that made sense to me because as home, a home brewer, it's like, yeah, right. of course. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, later on, they're the only brewers in the world that do the, do it that way. And it says a lot about what ca English Cascale is about, that you have this variation. And then, you know, earlier in the trip, we talked to uh, John Keeling at Fuller's, and he talked about having a relationship with your beer where he, he described it as knowing somebody, even if they'd had a haircut, Mm -hmm. So you go to the pub and you get your favorite, you know, you get your London Pride. And this day it may be a little bit uh, more attenuated or it may be uh, the hops are popping a little bit more. Maybe the nuts yeah. are, or the hop, uh, the malts are slightly more nutty, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Totally recognizable, but just a little subtle change like a haircut. Uh, and he talked about that as being sort of the nature of English beer. And, you know, it's those little subtle things when you're with a brewery and you see the guy at at the the mash tun fiddling with these levers these like metal levers to control <laughs> control temperature <laughs> and stuff from you know their 19th century con uh, technology that you realize um all of this stuff is important to the character of english ale and the way english ale is consumed and it's part of that narrative so i would you know take those back and listen to my tape and try to what you know figure out what is this happening what what does this tell me what is wh what what does this piece uh do to uh, round out this story of the style of beer. Right. So, right. you know, it was important not to go for the public thing, but actually talk to the guy who was making it and have him explain his piece of equipment and each, like, and ask him a lot of questions about how, why he did a thing and what he thought about a thing. And yeah, which, which I think makes the, the, the book so much better than, than, as I mentioned, just sort of an encyclopedia because it's all about these stories and these histories that you've learned uh, firsthand through, through the brewers themselves. So, uh, is immediately engaging. I've I've read through the first part and I've ch I've jumped around other parts and I've also read earlier some earlier versions that that you shared. Right. Um, and what's fun is that it's sort of immediately engaging. You can sort of pop the book open to any part and you'll sort of all of a sudden be immersed in these stories and and this culture. And uh, so uh, yeah, one of our friends, I think it was Joe, said to me, "It's a, it'll be great bathroom reading." So. <laughs> Well, high praise. Yes, high praise indeed. Uh, so uh, you mentioned that these, especially, I mean, I, I wasn't with you for the other bits, so what I'm, what's in my head, and I'll try not to, 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 to keep the conversation only on, on Great Britain, but these amazing old breweries, these amazing old Victorian breweries, some of them have changed uh, very little 
And the one that, of course, stands out in my mind is when we uh, visited Samuel Smith's. Yeah. And so two things. First, I didn't know, but apparently it's almost impossible to get into Samuel Smith. So how, how did you manage that? <laughs> I just asked. Oh, <laughs> so there, hat tip. Yeah. <laughs> to to yeah. other people. There were two things going in my favor. One is that uh, I'm an American. Mm-hmm. They're very interested in the American market, so that gave me a leg up over the English uh, writers who have told me that it's very hard to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, they've told me stories about actually going to the brewery and, you know, trying to storm the gates and being turned away, doing all different things. They can't and they can't get in. And um, I think uh, I think Pete Brown told us that when we were drinking pints with him, and he's yeah. you know one of the most accomplished beer writers in the world. So, so that was just dumb luck that I happened not to be English. Um, and the other thing is I went through the uh, exporter or importer um, merchant divan and they had a real have a really good relationship with the, the beers they represent they don't do a ton of uh, breweries mm-hmm. and they uh, encouraged uh, the brewery to have us look around so and I and I think at the end uh, I would let uh, I did there's in the in the book there are little chapters that describe visits to some of these amazing breweries, particularly when it's uh, described something essential about the kind of beer that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So I do these little mini, bi- mini biographies. Um, and I actually sent those to the breweries to make sure that I didn't get anything factually wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a couple of times uh, where I knew breweries had let me in and they felt like maybe they were anxious, you know, that they yeah, was yeah. a little anxious that I was going to let something out. And I think it was, it was good for them to see that and see that, uh, I was just reflecting what we'd seen. Yeah, so a couple of things about Samuel Smith. One is that they've been a sort of a fixture in the American beer scene for a long time. And so as an American, I had this impression of a pretty big player in the British beer scene. And they're really not. I mean, no, there, must, there, there must be an astounding percentage of their beer actually gets sent over here because it's not a big brewery. No, but I think they do send. You know, we found this all over the place. It's it's a real regional scene. It's sort of like the United States. So you have, you, you know, you're. We started out in London, and we were going to Fuller's pubs everywhere, and then we went to the South, and there were Harvey's pubs. Then we went over uh, to uh, uh, Suffolk, and there's uh, Green King everywhere. And then when you get up to Yorkshire, you start to find uh, uh, more Sam Ad, uh, more Sam Smiths up there. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's funny. You just each region is dominated by the pubs are dominated by certain breweries and and they don't they don't seem to go outside of Yorkshire much. Yeah, this is true, and it's it's interesting because it's a real sort of insight into what brewing used to be, uh, and the brewery itself is an incredible insight into what brewing used to be, and that's what that's I suppose that's what's the dichotomy for me is it's it is intentionally probably the most traditional brewery around. I mean, it that place looks virtually untouched since the 19th century in terms of how they do things. Oh, it, it, I mean, it, it basically is untouched. They deliver horses, or they deliver the... Yeah, uh, so the first thing you see when you get in there are the stables, Yeah. where there are actual draft horses. And every day they take those, they put their wooden ca- casks on a wagon and deliver it to the pubs in the, uh, in the little village they're and, located in. And the wooden casks are both manufactured and maintained in their own in-house cooperage. Right. Uh, and you and walk they, past a huge coal pile. Yeah, a massive coal pile that fires the brewery. Uh, <laughs> the water the water comes from wells that are sunk on site. Right. So all the water is coming from right beneath the brewery. Um, and the little brewery pub still has, and this isn't that ancient uh, because my mom tells stories of growing up in England uh, in front of the little coal fire, but they have still a coal fire going in their pub. And everything they do seems intentionally traditional. And if you make it to Yorkshire, you should definitely go to Tadcaster. You won't be able to tour that brewery, I don't think. I don't think they have public tours. But the little pub next to the brewery is one of the most interesting pubs we saw in England. It is really a trippy little old school pub. It feels like you're walking back into like 1952. Yes, yes, it does. Uh, but that's what's interesting. So they're a big, they've, they've made a big push into the American market and you can find them all over the US. Sam Smith is sort of a fixture on store shelves. Um, and yet it's from this sort of curiously traditional little brewery in in, uh, in Yorkshire. And it's one of those things. I think the, uh, it, you know, it says a great deal about the, uh, the uh, about the nature of English beer that this little brewery that has refused to modernize, um, it's essentially a, you know, they've got a system that, that was state-of-the-art for 150 years ago. 
that beer can be made at that facility and still be sold profitably uh, to people who regard it as not a weird historical curiosity, but actual the kind of beer that they like. Um, it, sh it, it tells you a lot about the other beer. It doesn't tell you as much about Sam, uh, Sam Smith's as it does about the beer that they're competing against, which is just as kind of old and throwbacky and um, unusual compared to you know modern uh, breweries you'd find elsewhere. I mean, it's really, it's quite a, it's quite an insight, and it's one of those things where touring that brewery gave me big insight into English beer. Yeah, and it's a it's a really neat sort of old Victorian Tower brewery, and you sort of walk up these rickety stairs to the very top where the whole process begins. And yeah, and we saw that at a few places, and again, it was yeah, you know, Green it was, King and other. It was really interesting. We we got we sort of began to feel like, oh, this is totally natural. You climb up five stories to the top where they have the the grain and they have the mill and it's some usually some weird old like steampunk looking mill. Um, and then it just goes down from there. You know, you have the mash tun and then you have the kettle at the next level down and you have the uh, fermentation in the basement. Um, just And it all, it all flows down. And after a while you realize this is how they do it and it's still kind of how they do it now. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So I imagine that you saw some sort of similar, I mean, not, not the same obviously, but, uh, but um, simil similarly traditional practices in Germany and the Czech Republic, for example. Yeah, definitely. Um, Germany is much more modern. Um, that's kind of part of their nature. Mm -hmm. The um, German mindset, it's not, you know, this is one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world. And, um, I would travel to, from brewery to brewery on the Audubon and, you know, people are going 150 miles an hour and they're fine automobiles. And this is a technologically advanced country. It's not surprising that that has penetrated to brewing. Um, yes, yeah, so a very precise, uh, a, a culture that, that appreciates very precise precision. Yeah. So, so uh, there's that. But, you know, there's this um, alt beer brewery in Dusseldorf called Urga. And they have... It totally blew my mind. They have a cool ship, and they have a drip chiller. So the beer, they brew the they brew the beer. They send it up to the uh, cool ship. It's not for inoculation; it's for cooling. So it spends um, a couple hours. I can't remember how long. It's in the in open the beer air. Bottle. What's that? In the open air. In the open just air. Just to cool. Yep, just to cool, and then it um, it drips down. Then they then they send it over the drip chiller. It drips down on that, and then it goes to the open fermenters, which is. Not, un, not unheard of in Germany, but still kind of unusual and mm -hmm. sort of old school. But the reason it all works is because they have this amazingly voracious, uh, voracious yeast that tears through the beer in about a day. Mm. So they, it, even if anything gets in that, uh, that, that beer, that wort as it's going along its cooling phase, um, can't compete with the yeast, so they don't have any trouble. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And, and uh, you visited... The uh, Urquell Brewery in, in Czech Republic. Yep. And as I recall, that's an interesting mix of modern and traditional, yeah? It's mostly modern. Um, they, they do have, uh, well, they do their own malting. And I've now visited that brewery twice, and I have not gotten to, gotten to see the malting, which ah. that always makes me slightly. And both times I made big requests, and both times I, I was given kind of vague brush off. So I do wonder what's going on with that super, malting. Yeah, the super secret multi-facility. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that malting facility is really where they receive malt that they buy somewhere else. I don't know. Mm. But but whatever but it but that's fine. Um mostly at the modern facility they they do have a few old fixtures um but they have used modern tech to kind of um avoid the downsides that would come with those. So um they sh you can still go to the cellars where they have some beer mm -hmm. aging and open fermenters and wood, but that's not for commercial production. It's it's just for folks who go down there, take the tour, and get to taste that beer. Yeah, and is it still true uh, in uh, Germany and uh, the Czech Republic that there are still very much regional styles beers that you find uh, um, ubiquitous in pubs surrounding the the, the breweries, but um, quite different from other parts of the country? Or has it sort of become now all beers are available everywhere? In Germany, there's a huge regional uh, uh, market. So, and you know, this is most weird and uh, distinctive in Dusseldorf and 
Cologne, where they where you can only find Alt beer in Dusseldorf and, and Kolsch in Cologne. You can't find any other beers there, mm. only those beers. And you can never find an Alt beer in Cologne or a, uh, <laughs> a, a Kolsch in Dusseldorf. Interesting. Um, they have a little rivalry there. But yeah, when you're in uh, 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 Bavaria, you will find uh, Dunkel and Helles at every single place you go. And you pretty much won't find Helles beer or Dunkels outside of Bavaria. Mm-hmm. Um, Vice beer is much more common elsewhere, but that's kind of a recent thing. Apparently, there's only been 20 years or so that it's started to leave. It used to only be a Bavarian thing. Um, the beers you get in in the north tend to be more basic kind of pale lager kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you see some regional stuff there. Uh, the Czech Republic's a tiny country, um, and it is a national market. But the cool thing about the Czech Republic, and you asked earlier about, to, uh, or you alluded to uh, beer tourism, I would put the Czech Republic on my list. Uh, that would be my first stop to anyone who was interested, mm. partly because the Czech Republic itself is a gorgeous place to travel. Mm. And it's, um, you know, Prague is one of the most historic cities in the world. Uh, but the other reason is because what I discovered there, beer-wise, was a whole world that was completely unknown to me and I think is unknown to most people. The beer is different than we expect. Mm. Uh, we think we know what Czech Pilsner is like. Yes. Um, but ma- basically, we don't ever get Czech Pilsner in the United States. Aside from Budvar, which is sold here as Czech Bar, and Pilsner Urquell, which are actually kind of unusual. But if you ask a Czech, tell me, tell me about uh, Urquell, tell me about uh, Budvar, they'll say, oh, yeah, those are weird beers. And they'll tell you why those are un- unlike other beers. Mm. Um, we don't get anything else that they make there. And they make, uh, so they, they, they do this process called decoction, which is an old... Uh, mashing technique. Um, they use floor malts. A lot of them are floor malts. The malts are much more like English malts. They're mm-hmm. uh, much more aromatic and rustic. Right. Um, and that, along with decoction, means that the beers are much thicker and more um, uh, hearty. The, the, the malt is thicker and much more like grainy and rich. And mm-hmm. then uh, this is what it, it's a big thing that distinguishes it from German beer. Uh, and the and the reason we think of them as being so hoppy is because those hops balance that that richness of malt in a way that it's not necessary in German beer. Um, and that's just the beers that uh, they call Svetle Lejax, the pale lagers. Mm-hmm. But there's also amber lagers and dark lagers. So you find these, and each one is a little bit different than the other. So each person has their own favorites. And there's quite a few breweries. Uh, in the Czech Republic, making these beers. So yeah, I mean the, the how you describe the pilsner, the the more traditional or standard pilsner there is not at all what I would associate with like an Urquell or even the Czech bar that I've had. Yeah, it's um, it's totally true. And the, and the funny thing is, you know, uh, pilsner Urquell is it's the original, and everybody defers to it. Mm-hmm. You won't find anybody if you order a pilsner in in the Czech Republic, they'll give you a pilsner Urquell because that's the only beer they'll call that that. And it seems like all the other breweries have chosen to make pale lagers that are not derivative. They've decided to do something else. They leave this right. world of Pilsner or Quell. It's it's a it's a pretty um, it's a it's what they they call a, a Lejac. It's a twelve Plato beer, mm-hmm. but it's only four point four percent alcohol, so it's it's quite un you know it's got a lot of residual sugars. Right. Um, that's totally unusual. Other breweries, no, no other brewery does that. Yeah. It's got that drop dollop of diacetyl in the middle and it's really creamy and kind of heavy it's a lot more expensive than other beers uh. in, in czech so it's like people consider it sort of like a luxury beer they'll have one pint maybe and that's it yeah well it's a big world obviously and you weren't able to travel the whole thing are there other uh parts of the world you wish you could have had you had more time and resources where would you have gone yeah i mean i had to make decisions and the two countries that that really worried me were uh, not going to the Netherlands and not going to Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, some people might know the beer blogger who's named the Beer Nut, um, and I refer to him sometimes on my blog. He's an Irish blogger, and I actually wrote to him and said, uh, "Tell me why I have to go to Ireland because I know I have to go, but I, I kind of, I, it's not in the budget, and I can't figure out how to do it. But once you make the case." And shame me, I'll I'll come. <laughs> and he said exactly the opposite. He said, "No, you shouldn't come. There's not that much. You know, you you know the main beer that's available here. There's not that much going on. It's a great pub culture, but you're going to see all you need to see in in when you're on in Great Britain." Mm-hmm. So I blew that off. Mm-hmm. Um, so blame him. Don't blame me. Um, I didn't go to the Netherlands because 
while I think they have a burgeoning beer culture and they have one of the most interesting and important uh, histories of beer, uh, it's not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. So, I, but I still felt a little bit bad about that. Uh, I would have loved to have gone to Scandinavia, which is doing some great stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and New Zealand, of course, seems like an important up, up and coming place. So, and then th apparently there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in Eastern Europe that's completely invisible to us because there's just no export. So like Polish beer, some right. Russian beer. Um, somebody told me about a Ukrainian wheat beer that's sort of like Weizen beer, but not really. <laughs> and he told me the town where it was made in, and I would love to go there and check it out. There's yeah. this one guy who talks about Lithuanian farmhouse ale on online who writes about that. That's got me really intrigued. I'd love to check that out. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are a million little pockets of interesting beer culture and even historic beer culture that uh, that exists around the world. But um, uh, you could spend your life trying to chase down every little every little lead. So yeah. Uh, the other thing that's that's true, especially these days, and we live in a world of blogs and instant uh, information. So here you are writing a book uh, that was mostly written a year or two ago, and uh, the beer, especially these days, is just the, the 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 rate of change in the craft beer culture, at least in the United States, is just dizzying. It's also true in, in Great Britain, I know. Um, so how did how did you try to deal with with uh, both being a sort of a, a general reference, but also trying to trying to appear up to date. Yeah, I, it's it, it's a little bit of an issue. I think it's maybe a more of an overblown issue than we think. Mm -hmm. um, there are a bunch of beers beers that are being made now that people think might evolve into um, uh, styles, but I think probably they won't. You know, I don't think our cucumber gozes are going to become a style. I think they're just interesting one-offs. So I'm actually feeling pretty good about the fact that I've talked about these these old styles. I think it's really important for people to know about these old styles, like grammar. You know, you can break the rules of grammar if you know them. And that's the case with beer, too. Um, if you understand that Czech pilsners are made through decoction with these kinds of malts and, you know, so on, always use sauce hops and so on and so forth, um, then when you tinker with it and do other stuff, that's totally cool. Um, but it's good to know that those old traditions exist, uh, and it's good to know what those old traditions are. So the the book was mainly written to, to describe sort of the uh, the landscape uh, of brewing uh, approaches and techniques. Not get in. It's not a review book. So there's there at the end of every chapter, I do talk about some beers that that are good examples. Um, and the chapter, so when we do a revision on this, if we do a revision on this, I will definitely revise the American chapters, uh, the, the discussion of American beers, which are, are, you know, changing quite a lot. I think, I, I'm pretty sure the word session IPA appears in this book, but, uh, <laughs> it does not warrant, uh, more than just like I mentioned. Um, and probably in five years time that I, I I'm thinking that style is going to stay around. Um, yeah. And it will require, you know, there, so there will be some updating. But I think for the most part, a lot of this is churn. And it's easy to get blinded by the churn and not not pay attention to some of the stuff that's really important behind the churn. Yeah, but I mean, I think you can, I think you've, you've, I think you're absolutely right. You can describe a lot of that as just riffing off these these well-known styles. And, 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 and there's a lot of sort of brewers who take a magpie approach. And it's like, well, what if I, you know, cross a, a traditional Czech Pilsner with an American... <laughs> double IPA <laughs> right uh, so you see a lot of that going on so in, in this sense I think that I think the, the the book is great because for people who are just becoming sort of uh, you know beer conscious now or craft beer conscious now um, uh, and who don't really understand the traditions and who don't really know where these beers are necessarily coming from or can sort of uh, think about them in in a context this is this is a way that they can really learn a lot in a very short time and in a very entertaining way well thank you i uh, hope that's true about about beer so um uh yeah my 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 congratulations i think it's uh it's quite an accomplishment well thank you i i i uh people have been saying nice things about it and i hope they enjoy it um of course the reader always gets the final say so um, I, I'm looking forward to hearing back from people about what they think of it and talking maybe about some of the things that I uh, mentioned in there. I think uh, one cool thing about beer is it's a good conversation starter. So I hope to hear back from folks. Yeah, and you have uh, and you have the, the Beervana blog, which um, is basically a, a place to 
continue that conversation and and to continue and 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 sort of in a virtual way update update the book or continue the 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 the, um, the thread of yeah and I hope to do that you know I haven't been blogging very well lately because I've just been swamped I'm working on another book and then we've got this book tour going on so my blogging has been kind of crappy but yeah I I I do look forward to getting back to that and and uh, engaging with folks. And you also have the podcast, so that's another Absolutely. way to engage. That's right. Uh, so uh, my last question, of course, is um, when the, the movie version of the Beer Bible is coming out, <laughs> sold the rights to Hollywood yet? Uh, well, no. oh, we, well um, I better not talk about that. You know, <laughs> that's you know, right. There's uh, legal issues. <laughs> you're still you're still in negotiations. <laughs> all right, ca- but if there... If ca- there this casting problem. All right, but if there was a movie, yeah, uh, who would you choose uh, to direct it? Uh, Chris Nolan or Joss Whedon? <laughs> uh well you know uh, uh, I, uh nolan of course it needs to be full of uh you use the word grandiose in the first uh the first question so you want grandiose i can, see, I can see a follow-up to interstellar right now that's right <laughs> <laughs> all right well uh jeff my congratulations the beer bible it's out now it's from work and publishing look for it in your local bookstore only 20 bucks which is Quite a deal. Only 20 bucks, or if you're like me, and you, you spring for the hardcover. Uh, uh, it's a little bit more, but it will last forever. It'll, that's, uh, that's it'll be a fixture on my shelves uh, for time, time, uh, from time. Uh, I was going to say immemorial, but that's backwards. For all time. For all time. Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, you can contact Jeff uh, through the uh, uh, Beervana uh, blog. He's also got face- the Beervana Facebook page, the Beervana blog Facebook page, uh, and you can contact him at um, the underscore beer axe at Yahoo. Yahoo.com. I was about to say Gmail. I knew that's not right. <laughs> uh, I don't have my notes in front of me. Uh, yeah, we didn't print out our usual uh, sheet for this thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, contact him. Uh, let him know what you think about about the beer bible. You can contact us uh, through the through the Beervana Facebook page. And uh, uh, you can contact me through the Beeronomics uh, blog. That's uh, right. Maybe you'll, you'll have some posts up soon. Maybe I'll have some posts up soon. You never know. <laughs> Summer's tough for everybody. There's it's the whole not a lot of content coming out of anywhere right now. That's right. Well, uh, through this, we've been Jeff and I've been drinking our our uh, our British inspired bitter. That's um, right. That came from our party guile brewing experiment. So this was the low one. It's about 3%, which is perfect for a day that's supposed to top off in triple digits here in Portland once again. Yeah. Uh, the heat wave uh, is back. Um, so I will uh, uh, sign off with a cheers to you and the book, Jeff. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.